1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Craig, Kenway, Toves, Two Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, the Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, and Adam. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today's episode is confusing. It's confused. It's all jumbled up, largely because the people who were telling this tale originally did the jumbling. I'd like you to imagine a book entitled something like Memoirs of a Mobster. You know, that's the kind of title that really moves units. Might even have been handed down by the publisher. In fact, a book like that might already exist, even. But imagine when you open up Memoirs of a Mobster and begin to read, you realize the title is inaccurate. It should really have been titled Memoirs of a Man that Happens to Come from a Mob Family Who Hangs Out Exclusively with Mobsters and is Intimately Familiar with Tommy Guns and Bootleg Liquor colon, but definitely not in the mob. Would you trust anything in that book? Would you trust a criminal, sorry, alleged criminal, to tell the truth about his or her criminality? That's a problem with which we have to wrestle here in our discussion of pirates and piracy. The subject is crime. Whatever other themes we might explore, it's a show about criminals and criminals that operated far from civilization. You know, we have records of some of their actions in legal records from England and Spain and France, and some of that's great, and it certainly helps verify the story, but it's not really a narrative. For something like that, we need to look to our primary sources. Alexander Exquimelin, William Dampier, Ravno de Lausanne, all of whom are pirates. Except, of course, William Dampier wasn't a pirate. He just happened to sail exclusively on pirate ships alongside the most notorious buccaneers of his day, all of which is simple happenstance. Colin, definitely not a pirate. Which begs the question, can we, in good faith, trust anything that William Dampier has to say? Should we take him at his word? Well, we can trust him on some things... His descriptions of people and places and flora and fauna and winds and tides, you know, the real meat of his book. At least we can trust him to be honest in that, if not necessarily accurate. He was certainly biased and a product of the 1600s, but he's telling what he views as the truth there. However, could we trust him to be honest about the piratical actions in which he took part? And the answer to that is complicated, but today we'll get to examine that very question, as we have a few new sources from which to draw. And that relieves me, personally. Not only do we have a second primary source narrative, we have a wealth of excellent scholarly research, and we have testimony taken from pirates who were there alongside contemporary legal analysis. That's a lot to draw upon. That's more than we've had to draw upon at almost any point in our show, excepting maybe The Sack of Panama by Henry Morgan. Because as the crew of Signet turned to piracy, suddenly they became the focus of nearly every authority in the East Indies. This is episode 133, Our Business Was to Pillage. I'm going to begin by jumping forward a few years, to the year 1690, a little over three years after our story today. The location is back in the Western Hemisphere, in the West Indies, in fact, on the coast of the Yucatan, in a lightly populated Spanish encomienda. I'd like you to imagine that you are the local governor there, not just of that encomienda, but of several in the region. And word reaches your desk of a shipwreck a shipwreck on the Caribbean coast of the peninsula under a Spanish captain. Now, none of that is noteworthy, except that the ship that wrecked was a Spanish East Indiaman. Now, that is interesting. A ship that rightly belonged in the Pacific on the opposite side of the continent from you, and then you hear about the cargo on board. There was some porcelain china, some ivory, a bit of indigo, but much more noteworthy and in larger quantities was a wealth in iron and bronze and tin. All of that, your agents assure you, came from Asia, and some of it carries the imprint of the English East India Company. Now here in 1690, England and Spain were allies in a war against France. Not friends, exactly, but working together to halt King Louis and his march across Europe. Now, here you have this Spanish vessel, far from her home port, carrying English goods that clearly belonged to the English East India Company. The right thing to do, in your shoes, would have been arresting the crew, confiscating the cargo, and sending all of that lovely metal to the nearest English colony, in this case, Jamaica. Jamaica. There it could be picked up by the company, and you could wash your hands of the entire ordeal. But then again, Spain was at war with France at the moment, and it was shaping up to be a very hot war. Materials like iron and bronze and tin were tough to come by in the empire, and very expensive. A ship this full of the stuff could equip your own ships with guns and sabers, and all of the armaments necessary to sail on over to Santo Domingo and oust the French dogs occupying half the island. Not only was that good for the war effort, that would be good for your own personal honor and glory. So what would you do with that haul of necessary war materials? Would you hand it off to the English, who would then win the honor and glory, and then once the war was over were likely as not to turn it on you? Or, would you commandeer those medals for the good of Spain? And if, in doing so, you had to fudge a few of the details, well, it's all for the greater good. Now, I don't know what you would do in that situation, but I'll give the ending away here just a bit. The governor in question chose the latter option. He took those goods for the war effort. It's likely... "'Probable, even, that some of this windfall of metal "'was utilized in the attack "'against Lauro de Graf and Michael Andrezun "'in the Spanish attack at Cap Francais and La Limonade. "'The captain of that ship was not arrested. "'He was given a place to stay "'and told he was not permitted to leave, "'then questioned over and over again by various officials "'until the governor made up his mind here. "'But then this captain chose totally on his own, with no government intervention whatsoever, or the threat of a prison cell hanging over his head, he chose to write a memoir, or really a confession. It was a full accounting, according to this captain, of the many varied events that led him to the shores of the Yucatan with a ship full of illicit goods. Turns out he was just transporting that ship full of goods to the local authorities, you know, taking that truck full of bootleg liquor to the sheriff's office. The mob, nah, he's on the up and up, a real law-abiding citizen and a good Catholic. And the captain here, indeed his whole crew, well, they're among the Spanish characters we're going to introduce today. Arguably, this captain is the most important Spanish character in this story. However, I'm going to dance around his story a bit namely, his identity, until next time, because, as I think I've made clear here, we can't trust his account. In fact, until quite recently, this source was disregarded as a fiction. However, thanks to the hard work of the Spanish-language linguist Estelle Irizarry and the historian López Lazaro, we can be fairly certain that there is a historical basis for this source, even if he was lying through his teeth the whole time. And he was. But before we get to him, we need to talk about the signet and how these two stories come to intersect. To begin with, let's talk crew. The crew of Signet was revamped, but made up mostly of old faces, people that we've met before. John Reed of Bristol served as captain of the signet, notorious pirate captain now. Josiah Teet, the former captain of the old bark, which they didn't have any more, was serving as the ship's master. Now, that's what Dampier tells us. Teet was the ship's master. But what does that mean exactly? Usually, in the sailor parlance of the seventeenth century, a ship's master meant captain, but we know that Teet wasn't the captain. What I think, and what many historians have argued, is that it represented a rank that was unique to late 17th-century buccaneer crews, when piracy was exploding all around the world, but many of the traditional forms had not yet been set in stone. On most pirate crews, especially later on, you have the captain and the quartermaster that share power. The captain commanded absolutely in time of battle, but the rest of the time, the quartermaster, in theory at least, represented the crew. Oftentimes though, the quartermaster represented the minority group among the crew. Sometimes the quartermaster would be whoever came in second in the race for captain, and that was a good policy. It ensured that nearly every crewman had someone in a position of power on board that represented their interests. Imagine... You know, the runner-up in a presidential race, serving as vice president—it's very much how the ancient Romans chose their consuls. That's the role that Josiah Teet played here, but he wasn't the quartermaster; he was the ship's master. And thus, what we think of in the other traditional pirate ranks, get pushed down a notch. The quartermaster on board signet was more of a manager what usually would have been a boatswain on other ships. And that post was held by Henry Moore, the man who had been the quartermaster this whole time. You might remember him being the first person to go ashore at Mindanao and meet the Sultan. And then we have a few new crewmen to introduce here, people who have been around this whole time but haven't yet become relevant. A man named John Oliver served as boatswain under Henry Moore the quartermaster. And then there are two others who were just regular crewmen, but they had been part of the sensible faction that voted for Teet, and we're going to need to know their names. The first was Mr. Robert Hall, and the second, well, Dampier doesn't remember his surname, but he was named Ambrose. Those two were friendly with Dampier, and the part of the crew that was hesitant about piracy and everything that John Reed represented as captain. And then we have a few other old faces. There's John Thacker, who you may remember as the crewman that Charles Swan publicly beat for wearing fancy clothes, as well as Herman Coppinger, serving as surgeon, and Dampier, again as navigator, and John Reed, that's R-E-E-D of Jamaica, as Master Gunner. You'll remember him from last time. So you've got John Reed of Bristol, Josiah Teet, Henry Moore, John Oliver, Robert Hall, Mr. Ambrose, John Thacker, William Dampier, Herman Coppinger, and John Reed of Jamaica. Those are all of the English, more Irish, names that we need to know for the moment, but we need to mention a few of the non-English sailors that were on board. Dampier occasionally alludes to one or another of these characters, but he rarely gives their name or their rank. However, later testimonies given by members of Signet's crew do a much better job. According to Lopez Lazaro, the first of these was, quote, Bernardo de Uriarte, a 49-year-old vecino, resident or native citizen, of the mining town of San Jose del Cobal, near Guanajuato in Nueva Vizcaya. Today's northern Mexico. End quote. Ariarte was captured way back in the winter of sixteen eighty five on the Pacific coast of Mexico. Additionally, there was quote, an Andalusian of Seville by the name of Miguel de Medina. End quote. Now Miguel was captured in Peru, earlier on the second Pacific adventure than Ariarte. I say he was captured, but that might not actually be the case. Regardless, though, however he came on board, Miguel took to the rover's life with real gusto and proves to be a central character moving forward. We need to remember Miguel de Medina. Then there was, quote, Marquis Toribillo, a black Creole from Cayo, captured in Peru, end quote, He was probably taken along with Miguel. Additionally, there were three other Spaniards that had been taken in Peru, one from Panama, and six Native Americans who may have been willing guides, or maybe not, and then a smattering of Moro women from Mindanao who may or may not have been willing concubines. That's all we have for now, although we will very soon be meeting others. And all of that brings us around to our story. When we left off last time, all of those names we just mentioned were sailing out of Maguindanao Harbor, leaving Charles Swan and some thirty-six others behind at Mindanao. At first, the signets stayed in the Moro Gulf, no more than five leagues or so out from the shoreline. You'll remember that they were low on food at this point, since Rajah La'Oot failed to produce the beef that he had promised the crew, so they were hoping to find a good hunting ground or somewhere to trade on the coast there. During that search, the crew spotted what every pirate in the world feared to see, a Spanish fortress springing into view from around a mountainside. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious.
0: Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: However, they had nothing to worry about. Upon inspection, they saw that the fort was abandoned, but it still had tall, strong stone walls. The fort looked like a good place to stop. It had a good harbor and defensible positions should Raja Laut give them chase or should say... Spanish or Dutch ships come upon them. In fact, it proved to be the perfect place to rest. There they found coconut and buffalo and hogs and sea turtles with, quote, flesh as sweet as any in the West Indies, end quote. They found fresh water, and with all of that, alongside the rice they had already, they were well provisioned for a sea voyage to wherever it was they chose to go. Now their first destination was the Sulu Archipelago. That's a series of islands between Mindanao and Borneo that, back in 1687, was part of the Sulu Sultanate. The Sulu Sultanate stretched from eastern Borneo, along this island chain, to the northern shores of Mindanao. They had friendly-ish relations with the people of Maguindanao, but there was a rivalry there. The archipelago, though, was home to the Moro pirates, or the Malay pirates, depending on who you're reading. The signet was cruising on the western end of one island when, quote, here we met with two proas belonging to the Salu, one of the Midianian nations. They came from Manila laden with silk and calico, end quote. And that's it. That's all he says about that, Maybe Signet stopped two proa and captured them, and they may not have. I don't know. These weren't Spanish Manila galleons, though. Manila galleons would be expected to carry things like silk and calico, but not proa. It's possible that they bought those goods in Manila, but not likely. What's much more likely is that the pirates, the English pirates I mean, hailed one of these Philippine proa, and, in broken Spanish, learned that they were kindred spirits, Moro pirates who had a haul of Spanish booty. Later on, in Spanish records, there would be mention made of several Malay men who were captured alongside some Spanish pirates. One of those, who spoke enough Spanish to give testimony, told a tale that contradicted his Spanish companions, but matched that of William Dampier. His name was Assam, a Philippine native, who reminds me a lot of Diego Lucifer or Diego the Mulatto back in the West Indies. You might remember that Diego had a black mother and a white father, and due to Spain's racial system, he was severely limited in his career and lifestyle options. Assam had a Moro mother and a Spanish father who were probably not married and might not even have been on a first-name basis. Much like Diego Lucifer, due to the constricting system of the Spanish, he chose to take his talents to sea, and he turned to piracy in the Sulu archipelago where he sought out his revenge. Assam and his men apparently joined up with the crew of Signet here. With these Moro rovers in their ranks, They had experienced pirates who knew these waters and Spanish shipping schedules on their side. That was going to prove to be very helpful. Although, not in Dampier or almost any other source I can find, do Assam or his Malay friends get the credit they deserved. Although that might be for the best, legally speaking. As we move on into the month of February 1687, well, it was an uneventful month. The pirates cruised by an island they called the Isle of Bats, due to the bats. They were giant bats, though. They swarmed in huge numbers and blacked out the sky. Dampier says they had bodies the size of a duck's body, and they had these massive leathern wingspans of eight feet or more. That was impressive, but not what the pirates were after. However, they did stop to careen the ship and outfit her for piracy. It had been a merchant vessel, and... Pirates liked their ships a certain way. Now, Captain Reed and Josiah Teat kept their cabins, which was out of the ordinary in pirate norms, but they gutted the rest of the Signet, of all of her cabins and excessive woodwork and furniture, to ensure that Signet would be as light and fast as possible. They scrubbed and tarred the hull. They repaired a bit of damage they had incurred hitting a rock a few weeks before, and they sewed sails, and they rolled ropes, and they swabbed the deck, and polished the guns, and basically they ensured that everything on board was in tip-top shape. And then they set their course northward, towards Luzon, the Spanish capital there, at Manila. Here at the end of February, we run into the meat of our story. But before we get to the swashbuckling piracy and the sea battles, we need to talk about historiography, dating systems, calendars, and papal history from the Middle Ages. It seems incredibly simple these days, but a large part of the reason that this other primary source with which we're about to run headlong, a large part of the reason it was considered a fabrication for so many years, is because the dates given by that author do not match up with the dates given by Dampier. Many of you, I'm sure, have already figured out the problem here. So if we go back to the reign of Caius Julius Caesar, consul for life of the Roman Republic, that Julius Caesar, he was the one, the Roman leader, who proposed what's called the Julian calendar. That's what measures a year in 365 days, except every four years, a leap year of 366 days. That is not, although it seems so uniform today, the way that everybody throughout world history has measured a year. However, it's the basis for our modern calendar, but it's not our modern calendar. 1,600 years after Julius Caesar instituted the Julian calendar in the year 1582, Pope Gregory Thirteenth took action on a problem that had arisen using the Julian calendar. The calendar, astronomically speaking, didn't match up with Easter or Christmas, which is You know, just a thing that happens. Over time, since the earth is always moving through the stars, the stars don't sit in our sky where they should on the days that we have all agreed mean what they mean. So Pope Gregory XIII implemented a new calendar that jumped 13 days ahead to match the current date with astronomical reality. And that is the Gregorian calendar which we use today as you might imagine, this upset a ton of people who had to celebrate Christmas on what they saw as December the 12th. I mean, imagine it. They'd been told by priests their entire lives that Jesus was born and reborn on these days, and then they changed the dates on you. Some cultures, in fact, still hold to the Julian calendar, Anabaptists, for example a number of Coptic sects, and parts of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which, you will note, none of whom are Catholic. They didn't subscribe to this Catholic mandate. And in the early modern period, the burgeoning Protestant world weren't about to let the Pope tell them what to do either, and that included the English, who in 1687 were still using the Julian calendar. That is a very long-winded way of saying that even though the dates given by William Dampier and our other primary source didn't match, the primary reason that that report was discounted, they actually represent the same day. Well, there is one day off, but that's because of the international dateline which Dampier got wrong. Now, with all of that understood, and the fact that something really happened, we can move on to the fun stuff. Dampier writes that on the 18th of February, or the 3rd of March by Spanish Gregorian reckoning, the pirates came upon, a canoe with four Indians came from Manila. They were very shy of us, but at last, hearing us speak Spanish, they came to us and told us that the harbor of Manila is seldom without twenty or thirty sail of vessels. Most Chinese, some Portuguese, and some few the Spaniards have of their own. We told them we came to trade with the Spaniards, but this was only a pretense of ours to get out of them what intelligence we could as to their shipping, strength, and the like, under color of seeking a trade, for our business was to pillage. End quote. Despite that dramatic turn of phrase, Dampier always downplays the piracy, and he tells us very little of what's to come. But, we have two excellent sources from which to draw. There is that other source, which I continue to dance around, and the testimony of a one Bartolome Luis, a sailor who was there on the day. Somewhere around late to mid-morning, probably near 10 a.m., the signet came upon a Sampan, rowing west along the northern coast of Capones Island, just off the coast of the main island of Luzon. Now, Sampan were kind of smallish, flat bottomed boats of a Chinese design that were then, and still are, widely used all across Southeast Asia. If you think about the boats that you might see in a Vietnam War movie, that's basically a sampan. It was this particular sampan, a private craft that was owned by a man named Don Francisco Arsaga. Now, Signet stopped the sampan and sent men aboard to search the ship. Now, keep in mind, there wasn't a battle here. They had nothing to fight back with. The pirates just did as they chose as the tiny Sampan sat under their gun battery. And on board, they found some valuable goods, you know, spices and dyes. All of that belonged to a notable in the region, a man named Capitan Alonso de Castillo. However, the primary cargo on this Sampan seemed to be Arsaga himself and his family. He and his whole family were being moved to a different command. They were being ferried on board this Sampan when Signet stopped them. Now, the pirates didn't have the option of just letting them go. Arsaga and his family were witnesses, and they would certainly raise the alarm at the nearest opportunity. So they were all taken on board. The small crew of the Sampan, Arsaga himself, his manservant, and what were called his women, which included probably a mother, a wife, daughters, and even babies suckling at the breast, quote unquote. Now one might assume that a bunch of wives and daughters would be in some sort of peril among this crew of villainous pirates, but those women were interviewed, and they reported nothing but gentleness and a kind of polite, almost apologetic attitude for what they were being put through here. The pirates clearly had no intention of harming these people or probably even ransoming them. They weren't worth that much. They merely needed to keep them from raising the alarm. Now, one source says that the pirates burned the sampan, but another contradicts that. If we were to distill what they say with what Dampier tells us, I think that the pirates did burn the sampan. After all, it was evidence. You could take it with you, but you already had ships, boats. It would be better to burn it, and leave it to the bottom of the sea. However, a couple of hours later, the signet came upon another ship, this one a bark, sometime in the mid-afternoon, maybe 2 p.m. Dampier writes, quote, She was bound to Manila, but had no goods aboard, therefore we turned her away, end quote. But I don't think that Dampier was entirely truthful here. The Other sources agree that the pirates on board signet weren't interested in the cargo that was on board this Manila ship, mostly rice. But they do not agree that this bark was simply turned away. See, the pirates would have had the same problem with this bark that they had with the Sampan. The bark carried witnesses who could and would raise the alarm. And a ship like that, a bark, was fairly sizable. It couldn't just be burned and disappear. It would raise a lot of smoke and take a while to burn. Now, the crew appears to have been debating whether or not to take the bark with them. They had a growing crew. They had just taken on a number of Malay pirates, and a bark would be a handy thing to have. Teet had captained the last bark belonging to the signet, and he could do the same for this one. And I'm certain that a bunch of the people in Teet's camp were arguing for that, including Dampier and Coppinger. It would have been an escape route should that become necessary. But while the pirates were sitting there discussing their options with captives tied up on board and an empty ship held fast, awaiting her fate, another ship arrived on the scene. Now, our anonymous source details that ship's strength. It was his ship reportedly, so he should know. He tells us that the governor of the Philippines himself General Don Gabriel de Juzalegui ordered him out personally on a single-deck frigate with twenty-five men under his command. The purpose of that frigate was to ferry provisions back to Manila. Our source writes, Out of the royal armory I was given four pikes and two muskets for the ship's defense, but since the serpentines were broken we needed to keep our fuses constantly lit to shoot the muskets. They also gave me two handfuls of bullets and five pounds of powder. Supplied with these arms and munitions, but without ordnance or mortars, though my vessel had ports for six, I set sail." Two muskets, four pikes, a handful of bullets, and no large guns." That is a pathetic compliment for a ship's defence by any measurement. It was around 4:30 in the afternoon, everyone agrees, when that Spanish ship in question, called the Aranzazu, spotted what they quote assumed was one of the merchantmen from the port of Cavite. End quote. Our sources tell us that the signet sent out two pirogues to approach Aranzazu. Now, were signet a Spanish merchantman, that would have been perfectly ordinary behavior. Because the Aranzazu was currently tacking against the wind and virtually unable to move, she was becalmed. A friendly Spanish ship would likely have sent over somebody to make sure everything was all right. However, as these pirogues grew near, the Spanish on board noted the muskets and the sabers that every man carried. And as they grew even closer, the Spanish realized that these weapons were not of a Spanish make. The men on board the Pirogues called out to the Aranzazu in heavily accented Spanish. They said, Ahoy there! Where have you come from? Where are you sailing to? And the captain of the Aranzazu responded warily, From the sea. In the years to come, that exchange would be the expected question and response among pirates. That is to say, When a pirate hailed a ship and got that response that they are from the sea, the pirate is supposed to assume that the other ship are pirates as well, and therefore not to be attacked. So, why did these Spaniards use that call? Maybe they were just being cautious. They didn't want to give away their port of call. Maybe they had been trained to use that response if they suspected that the ship hailing them were pirates. Or, maybe, just maybe, they were from the sea. Maybe our source, on board Zazu was lying about being provisioned by the governor in the royal armory. Maybe he and his twenty-five men were, in fact, Spanish renegados. Pirates who would wind up, a few years later, wrecked on the shores of the Yucatan. No, I don't know that to be the case. It's merely a theory I have. Everybody here was lying. They were all trying to keep themselves out of prison and away from the gallows, so hard fact is a tough thing to decipher. However, I'm going to proceed as though the Aranzazu were what they claimed, merely a merchant ship ferrying goods to Manila. One of the pirates on the pirogue called their bluff here. They ordered Aranzazu to, quote, furl your sails, and the captain of Aranzazu responded, come aboard and do it yourself. That was as good an invitation as any pirates ever needed. They opened fire. The captain of Aranzazu writes, quote, I disposed my ship as best I could for defense with my two muskets and four pikes, but bullets began to rain down on us from the shotguns and muskets from the men aboard their pirogues. However, they did not immediately board us, and we answered their shots with our muskets." They probably didn't board Arunzazu because all they had were the men on their pirogues, which was likely no more than were on the frigate, somewhere in the 20 to 30 range. They could have boarded her, but it may have been a tough fight, and at the moment the signet, The empty bark and the Aranzazu were all essentially becalmed. It was a stalemate. The Spanish frigate was out of range of Signet's guns, but the English pirates were in between Aranzazu and shore. Even more, the pirogues had oars. They could circle all around Aranzazu and fire anywhere they chose to from all directions. There was no escape for the Spanish here unless, maybe, the wind picked up in her favor. One account says that the fighting went on for two hours, another for three hours. But really it wasn't much of a fight, it was more harassment here. The Spanish on board Aranzazu had two muskets, that's virtually nothing. Even if the pirates did board her, they had almost no steel on board and only 25 sailors. And all of our Spanish sources wax poetic about a brave resistance here, but really? And I don't intend to demean Spanish bravery here. More than once in our show we have seen an outnumbered and under-armed group of brave Spanish soldiers hold back an overwhelming pirate force. But I mean, come on here. Twenty-five sailors, and these were errand boys, not soldiers here, and they had two muskets? To think of them resisting is such a ludicrous thought that, well, I will humor them here, I'll finish their story. After three hours of fierce fighting, the signet was able to draw close once the wind picked up with her eighteen big guns and eighty or so deadly pirates aboard. Aranzazu tried to tack away from the fight, but the pirogues kept her pilot from the helm. The devilish captain of perfidious Albion called out to Aranzazu to, quote, ease their sheets. But the Spanish would not comply. They put up a brave resistance at the rail. They cut down grappling hooks and stood firm with pikes in hand. And as everyone knows, those filthy English Protestants are all cowards at heart. It looked like they might prevail in the face of great odds. But in the end, after many grievous wounds taken, the heathen barbarians overwhelmed the deck and captured Aranzazu. Now... Dampier doesn't contradict that. His account of this dashing sea battle reads, quote, We took another vessel that came from the same place. She was laden with rice and cotton, also bound for Manila. Those goods were purposely for the Acapulco ship. The rice was for the men, and the cotton cloth for sale. End quote. And, uh, yeah, that's it. I mean... Imagine that you were Dampier's publishers here. This is the first capture that you've had to talk about for some time now. Wouldn't you want to sex it up a bit? You know, give us some fire and blood, Dampier. Give us something to work with. But I doubt there really was much fire or blood. There was at least one volley, verifiably, because one Spaniard was injured in the fighting. That volley might even have been a warning volley. I suspect that the battle lasted less than half an hour, probably significantly less. The Spanish more than likely capitulated very quickly and struck sail. If it was just a warning shot, I don't think we could blame the Spanish here. It would have been incredibly stupid to put up a serious fight. All that would have gained would be death and destruction. As undermanned and underarmed as you are, you surrender. However, imagine that you were writing a confession. Years later, to absolve yourself of any guilt you might carry in some upcoming piracies, you would absolutely say that you fought with your life to keep these pirates from taking your ship. Regardless of all that, somewhere between 6 and 7 p.m. on the 4th of March, 1687, by modern reckoning, Aranzazu was in the hands of the English Pirates of the Signet. I enjoy these tales of long work days for the pirates. Once they get their ships up to par, they sail into major shipping lanes and capture two or three or five ships in a day, sometimes more. Usually they're not ships of much consequence, but they're fun stories. However, what comes after? They capture those ships is even more fascinating still. Next time, we're going to talk about what happened on board Signet and Arunzazu and that bark. Now, that story is disputed on all sides, and it's filled with even more lies than today's tale. However, we're going to finally meet our anonymous chronicler and explore who he actually was, and hopefully, find the truth. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support this show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has donated to the show through the website, everybody who has left us a rating or a review wherever it is you listen, everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.